Okay, so let's do a quick summary before we begin Esther, paragraph 12, chapter 6. Let's do a quick summary of, um, of what's been going on. Because the most mysterious thing about this chapter, although it's on the one hand the most exciting, right? It's one where, um, where all the mood changes. We're going from everything going wrong and danger and death and so on to all of a sudden things start going right. We start getting a beginning of a, of a turning point over here where, where um, suddenly Mordechai is having his first victory, Haman's having his first defeat, and there's tremendous joy in all that. But the real question is, what on earth is this chapter doing in terms of the narrative? What changes because of this chapter? Right, let's give a brief overview before we go into it. So, that night the king can't sleep. And, as he, and, and in fact, here all the commentaries take the obvious hint. This is not just uh, King Ahasuerus who can't sleep, but as it were, the king of the universe. To whatever extent it might appear like he's been asleep, sleep means a state in God's terms of letting the world run as if he's not intervening, and suddenly he's, he's awakening, something's happening. Now, even Ibn Ezra, who normally takes everything in the pshat of the pshat of the pshat, obviously brings this in here. It's, it's unavoidable. And we have the whole episode, as we're going to see, with Haman taking Mordechai around town, and, and Haman being humiliated, Mordechai being elevated. But actually, in terms of the story, it's not obvious at first what role this plays at all. In other words, suppose this hadn't happened. Esther's been, you know, she's the Jewish queen. There's a plot to kill the Jews. Mordechai's begged her to go in. Mordechai had an idea. She told him it's a ridiculous idea. He said, fine, but you got to do something, right? Well, come on. And so she says, fine, everyone should fast. She then walks into the palace without a plan, right? Ten possible options she has. Well, the king says, what do you want? Uh, can the king and Haman come to a party? Why? Ten possible reasons that we saw in the Gemara. <laughs> Which means no clear reason. At the party, nothing happens, right? Nothing. She's waiting, awaiting, awaiting. No miracle happens. So then she says, let's do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow, I promise you, I'll reveal everything. The next day, she reveals everything and Haman gets killed. And that begins a process in which the Jewish people eventually get saved. What's this little episode in the middle of the night got to do with anything? Suppose it hadn't happened. How would the story be different? She wouldn't have gone in the next day. She would have gone in the next day. She wouldn't have said, by the way, someone's planning to kill me and my people. She would have said, somebody's planning to kill me and my people. The king would have said, who is it? She would have said, Homan. He would have ended up being hung on a tree. Harvoina would have popped in at the last minute, as we'll see. Obviously, when we get there, oh, by the way, he's built a tree to hang Mordechai. So how does this really change the story? That's a question we're going to have to think about as we go through this chapter now. Because it's clearly intended as a turning point, but in narrative terms, what is the meaning of this chapter? So now let's get into the chapter. That night, the king's sleep is interrupted. He cannot sleep easily. And there is an absolutely beautiful medrash that links everything together over here. The medrash rabbi says, First of all, in heaven, the... Throne of the king, king of kings, is shaken. Shirah es Yisrael batzara. He saw the Jewish people in tremendous pain. Now, what do you mean? God sleeps. That's what we say in Tehillim, right? In the Pasuk. And now, you know, this time when it's a challenge for the whole Jewish people, we're saying these Tehillim all the time. Hashem never sleeps. 
What it means is it's a state of the world where Yisrael, where the Jewish people are in trouble and the rest of the world seems fine. And the meaning of that is this. The Jewish people, Klal Yisrael, are the people who are the living incarnation of God's vision of the way things have to ultimately be. That's what Klal Yisrael are. That's what the Jewish people are. So as history moves forward, in other words, history moves forward, it moves in the direction that we've taken on. Klal Yisrael, we came out of Egypt, we came out to be a nation who are, somebody's got the, um, somebody's not muted. If you could mute, that would be fantastic. Um, let me just see if I can. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I'll just mute the phones. So, yeah, so, um, Clarissa came out of Egypt and they came out in order to be a nation that belongs to the future, not the present. Right? Another whole story. Maybe we'll get to Pesach, I'll talk about it. But in essence, God took us out of the present and built a people of the future, a people dedicated to a vision that will ultimately be Eilamaba, God's will completely manifest in the world. And the goal of the Jewish people is to be citizens of the future who are temporary residents of the present so that we'll pull the world eventually to where it needs to get to. And so long as we're doing what we need to do and we're clearly helping the world get there, then things are moving in an obvious way in the direction of Hashem's plan and you call that Hashem being awake. But when it looks like we're just being crushed and the, the world that doesn't want to change is destroying the change, then it's like we use the word that Hashem's uh, obvious manifestation in history is asleep. That's what the Medrash is saying. Then the next meaning is, so that's meaning number one. Meaning number two, it also obviously means that the sleep of King Achashverosh is being disturbed. Listen to this. He saw in his dream, he has a nightmare that night that Haman takes the sword to kill him. Right? Venival and he trembles, he, he awakens from his sleep in his stress. He says, Bring me the, the chronicles. I want to see who's my friends, who's my enemies. They find the whole thing that, that, uh, that uh, Mordechai told the story to save his life. So, and that's why later on, when they find out the Haman is in the courtyard, Achashverosh says, ah, you see my nightmare came, is coming true. Now the Gemara fills in some very important gaps over here. Why is he having this nightmare? So you could say it's an ace. It's a pure miracle. Hashem implanted a nightmare in his mind to set up the whole thing. But the Gemara adds another dimension over here. And by the way, you'll notice many of these sub-themes. Last week when the Gemara said, what, what was Esther thinking? in order to bring Haman and Achashverosh together to a party, some of the ideas were here. Hashem should be awakened because of the, the challenges the people are in. The people should be panicked by it. All these things. And the king should be jealous of Haman. Says the Gemara, think about what was going on in Achashverosh's mind. Remember, he has, he's paranoid from the beginning. He is desperately trying to... Um, sorry, does somebody have their hand up? Somebody wanted to ask a question? Okay, if somebody wants to ask a question, with pleasure, you can unmute and ask. Um, so, think what's been going on. He's had this panic all the time. He's been desperately trying to win everybody over, including Haman and Mordechai, these two very powerful people. One who's, who is desperately trying to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash for the Jewish people and get the Jews into Jerusalem. One who's resisting them tooth and nail. 
So he's constantly balancing between them. And then he's got Esther, this new queen, who he finally thought he found a woman who couldn't threaten him because she's so passive, at least it seems that way. And yet, uh, now she's this mystery and he can't deal with this mysterious woman. Like, who is she? I don't know who she is. What's her agenda? What's... And 30 days, he's been, she's ignored him, he's ignored her, and suddenly she turns up. And next thing she, he knows is that Haman is now invited to this party, and he's paranoid to think what's going on through his mind. What this strange thing. Esther risks her life to come and invite me to a party with Haman. There's got to be a, a plot here. I knew she's got, you know, she's all this time, I've, I've been desperate to find out who she is. I don't know who she is. Next thing I know, she's risking her life just to bring me to a party with Haman. There's something wrong. And that's why he's having nightmares. They're in our plot. And, and next thing he's saying, says the Gemara, is why is nobody telling me about the plot? If there's a conspiracy, there must be people who know. Why is no one informing me about conspiracy? Maybe they don't trust me to reward them. Have I ever let anybody down before? Right, let's open the book. So all of Achashverosh's psychological paranoia that was manifest so deeply in the first chapter and in all the subsequent chapters, is now playing a role in this part of the story. Right? Okay. Esther, who didn't know exactly why she's bringing home on there, amongst the many factors she thought about was the possible jealousy. That's sort of now beginning to happen. So he can't sleep. He's panicking. He's worrying. He's this, he's that, he's the other. Now, So he said, let's bring the book of Chronicles. It should be in the Chronicles. So let's view in the Chronicles. Let's read it out. They found written a dull story in the Gemara. They were trying not to, but in the end, they couldn't help it. This, this just kept... Okay. Suddenly, this whole chronicle emerges that Mordechai had saved the king from Big Son of Sarah. The two officers of the king, Mishomer Asaf, from the, the Republican Guard, or the non-Republican Guard, the Royal Guard, right? They had sought to kill Achashverosh. What's this? What's been done? Right, we must have given him a great reward, surely, right? Because that's what I do, don't I? Uh, and they, they say, actually, no, nothing. We haven't done anything for him. We haven't done anything for him. But the Gemara says, wasn't they loved Mordechai? These were, they just hated Haman. You know? Okay, whichever way, the point is, nothing's been done for him. So the next thing the king says, who's in the courtyard? What's that got to do with anything? Right? But he is, there's a commotion, there's a noise going on in the courtyard. Haman had come in to tell the king to hang Mordechai on the tree he prepared. Now you can watch the elements coalescing. Once you've seen that medrash and that Gemara, it suddenly opens your eyes. Of course that's what's going on in this story. right? All the pieces are beginning to coalesce. And here we have one of the most beautiful hints in the whole Megillah. Let's hear that last few words again. Haman came to the Chatzar Beisamelech, to the courtyard of the house of the king, Hachitzonah, the outer one. Leymar Lamelech, his intention was to tell the king. Notice he's not asking the king. Haman doesn't bother asking the king anymore. He's convinced he's in charge of the king. Lislois as Mordechai, to hang Mordechai, al eight on the tree, Asher Heichen, that he had prepared loy for him. For who? For whom? This is like the, the uh, you know, the ambiguous pronoun. So on the simple meaning, it's Mordechai, obviously. But the Gemara points out, no, you could read that he prepared for himself. And that's, of course, the double meaning all the way through the Megillah. He builds the tree tank, Mordechai, but of course he's going to be hung on it. His very name was Memuchan. 
that which is prepared, right? The whole thing is being prepared. And okay, the irony that that's playing out over here is so powerful. And here, the entire chapter is centered around this irony. So once we've seen the Medrash, it's just beautiful. The king is now panicking over Haman. And he's having nightmares. By the way, an amazing thing, the Gemara in Brachos says that every dream goes after its interpretation, right? So you can have a dream that Homan's hanging there with a knife and you could think very quickly, he's planning to kill somebody else or he could say he's planning to kill me. It just depends who you are as to how you're going to interpret it. But everything's now conspiring so that Achashverosh is going to see all of this go on over here. Now, so he says, who's so he says, who's in the thing? And Haman was there. So So the, the servants of the king say to him, Hey, it's Haman. He is standing in the courtyard. And the king says, let him come. By the way, remember, Haman is teaching us every lesson we need to really understand about anti-Semitism. Right? Anti-Semitism is not bigotry. Anti-Semitism is not dislike of the unlike. There are things like that too. There's plenty of bigots who don't like Jews and don't like lots of people. Dislike of the unlike. But the real shirish of the real hatred and demonization of Kanali Sol is Homon. Homon is the most manifest form of it. And he has come, right, to kill the king. Anti-Semitism is the desire subconsciously to rid the world of its creator and to rid the world of its, as we saw earlier, in the in the uh, the creator's will on earth that runs through Klalisal, the desire to destroy Klalisal is, is ultimately the desire to destroy the creator's will. Right? That's exactly what's going on over here. When you pick up the hinted level, everything the Gemara is saying and the Midrashim is saying here in the Megillah is speaking on multiple levels. And all the levels of the subconscious. So there's conscious layers to the story, there's subconscious layers to the story. All of these things are playing out over here. Okay. Again, any questions, feel free to ask them. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep going. So Haman comes in. And the king says to him, What should we do? About a man, right? The honor the king wants to honor. By the way, remember, the king himself was always looking for the akar. That, this honor, that's exactly what he was doing in the opening party. It was to show that how yakar, how precious was the his glory. Okay. And Haman says in his heart, Who could the king possibly be intending? And this is literally building Haman up now for the fall. But it's so beautiful and so powerful. But the, the Madrash points out something very, very special over here. The beautiful Madrash. Um, says, the Rishayim speak inside their heart. They're under the control of their heart. Right? Of course, we're linking back to Esau, as we've done all the way through the Megillah. Right? We saw this idea of, of the attitude of Esau to anything that's valuable to the Jewish people. To Yaakov is the same as the attitude of Haman to the Jewish people. Vayivez, a despising. Right, we saw how so many different issues are, are going to be related. Even this right now, by the way, coming into the king after Mordechai is already going to be blessed, just like Esau comes into his father after Yaakov's already taken the blessing. The king's decided to bless Yaakov now. So he's going to make Haman, who wants that blessing, to become a servant to him, which is exactly the bracha that Esau gets in the end, unless Yaakov messes up. Right, and we saw many, many other hints between the two. So here we have Esau also, Billy boy. 
But we have other examples. Oman novel beliboi, Rai Malachim Aleph in Perigyad Beis in chapter 12, 26, same thing. Yuri Meyerovim beliboi. Wherever you look in Tanakh, you will always see that they say it in their heart, meaning their heart is the arena within which their voice speaks to them internally. Their heart controls them, their passions control them. Right? They control their passions and hearts. So it says with Hannah, when she's praying, when she cries, so she should have a child. Not she speaks in her heart, but she talks upon her heart. And as she talks to her heart, she directs the emotions. The tzaddik is in control of their emotions. But he also Daniel Lalibai, right? Daniel does the same thing. Or David, David Elibai talks to him, and so on. Hashem Elibai, right? Similar thing in Barashas, right? Even Hashem speaks to whatever it means his heart, the equivalent to whatever it is that uh, we would call love or thing, the, the programs he runs in the world, he's in complete control of. So that you see the difference. Of course, if you want to get into Kahalas, one day you can see how that works, when what's Belibai, etc. Anyway, but I'm not going to go into all of that now. The point is that you see exactly this point, that Haman is in essence in the same place that Esau is in, that his passions control him. And we've seen this all the way through, that uh, he's filled with chema, he's filled with anger, he's filled with this, he's filled with that. So this is a very powerful little hint going on over here of the key difference. And we'll see the practical ramification because Haman is so desperate to cut God out of the world that he perceives all of reality as coincidence, then he never, ever, ever is in control of himself. Right? And as he feels the passions inside him, as they tell, they become the barometer. If he feels he's up, he thinks the whole world is perfected. If he feels down, he thinks the whole world's coming to a close. Right? That's what all, anybody who is not trusting God to run the world is always projecting a vision of exactly where they are in history. We saw last week the opposite for Mordechai and for Esther. If you completely trust Hashem to run the world, then your passions don't control you and, your vid- and you don't at any point have to try to say, I'm exactly here, I'm exactly there. I don't know where I am. Who knows if this is why you became queen? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Esther, bring home on a I don't know why. I know I've got to do the right inputs. I don't know what the outputs are going to be, right? Okay. And that all goes together. You see, a person in Bitochon, their heart doesn't rule them. When a person is really handed over and Hashem's running the world, it's an amazing thing. Their passions calm down. They're not trying to be in control all the time. Sorry, not sure what's going on over here. Why? Ah, I can see what happened. I'm touching the keyboard there. Okay, fine. Um, so, next. So, Haman has said, of course, in his heart, which means his heart tells him, obviously, this is all going in my favor because that's how Haman looks at the world. If things are going well, then he says, oh, I've, I've got all of history sorted out. No problems here. It's all happening. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm running the world. So great. So obviously the next stage is, this is just about my elevation all the way up. Okay, just one second. Now, so Vayoma Haman Elamelech, Haman says to the king, oh, I don't know who you're talking about, but whoever this might be, this uh, any guy you might really want to honor, your view of Vush Malchus, you should Put him in royal clothing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can just see the takeover plan of it. But not any old royal clothing, specifically clothing that the king himself has worn. You can just watch Achashverosh stewing over here. But Haman is oblivious. He is completely in his own universe right now where his emotions are telling him, we've got this worked out, you're on the way to complete kingship. 
And what does emotions tell him? When you're trying to control the world, your emotions completely blind you. That's exactly what happens. So this is what's going on over here. He can't see what the king's reaction. He can't see how crazy what he's saying is. Vesus and the horse, that the king himself has ridden on. <coughs> Put the crown on his head. Oof. You can just see a Hashveira stewing. And the clothing and horse should be put from one of the, specifically one of the king's most senior officers. <clears throat> one second. You know, real important guys, they'll be sure and they should dress. Whoever this guy is who the king decides he should be honoring, you know. And that guy, that senior official, should ride him round on the horse in the town square and call before him. This is how it should be done to the one whom the king seeks to honor. And this is just the most ironic, beautiful moment of the beginning. The king says to Haman, beautiful, my hair, hurry. You're, you're the senior guy. Take the clothing, and the horse. Notice what he misses out. No, no crown over here. <laughs> that was like a, a level of chutzpah just too far. Take that. Exactly as you said. Because Haman's immediately, well, I mean, you know, okay, I'll, I'll get someone. No, no, no. Exactly as you said. I heard every nuance and I heard every single subtlety and every single one of them is now going to be manifest. So you have engineered this scenario, Haman, not me. I'm not even punishing you. You have done this to yourself, right? This is an amazing move over here because it's the first, it's a microcosm of everything that's going to happen in the Megillah. Remember, the Megillah is, as we saw in chapter three, a controlled experiment in what happens if evil runs the world completely unimpeded. And we saw that in the short term, it can do horrific and catastrophic things. Nobody's intervening. Nobody's stopping it. The king, God himself, as well as Ahasuerus, is saying to Haman, how would you like the world to run right now? And Haman says, I'll tell you. you you've got the king. You've got the ring. Right, say the rabbis. Not the, say the rabbis, it's the Megillah. You have the ring. Ahasuerus hands the ring. And it says Hamelech, which hints that God himself is handing the ring of history to Haman. Haman runs the world. Right now, nobody decided what should happen to Mordechai except Haman. What do you want to happen? Uh, Haman doesn't get reality, see, so he, he gets it all wrong, but he is the only decision maker. There is no one else making decisions. And in the short run, evil can do horrific things. But in the long run, it turns itself into the service of the good through its own destruction. This is a microcosm now of the rest of the story. So this is exactly it. Everything you said, no, don't, you have controlled, you've determined history, it's your law. Hold on, you're now stuck inside it. You're trapped inside the world that you've tried to build. You've tried to kill the king. You've tried to usurp the king. That's what you thought you were achieving. Well, given all the levers of history, it always rebounds on you. That's going to be the power of the beginning of the first revelation, what's going to become the ultimate revelation of the Purim story. So this is it. Um, and the Mordechai Hayahudi to Mordechai. Which Mordechai? Like you can imagine, and this will go on. Like, oh, I'll find a guy called Mordechai. No, 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 the Jewish one. Okay, I guess there must be a few Jews called Mordechai. No, no, no. The king knows this guy. You know, that's the one. Al Tapel Dover. Don't drop a little drop from Mikola Shadibarta from everything you said. Your word is the law. 
So he did it. He has to take the clothing that the king's worn and the sus, the horse that the king's worn. He is dressing Mordechai. Right? Mordechai still has been in sackcloth and nobody's been able to get him clothing. Now Haman is the one who can get him clothing. And remember that we said that you cannot come to the gate of the king in sackcloth and mourning. Right? So who can bring him? So remember the gate of the king is also a hint at the king of kings, Hashem. Who can bring him close to Hashem? Haman. You see what he's doing? By putting him in sackcloth is now like he can now for a moment be completely close to Hashem. So this is an unbelievable thing. And that's all Haman. Haman is elevating Klalisol. Huh. Haman is the one who's destroying evil, destroying himself and elevating Klalisol and, and doing the king's will and helping the one who served the king. So all of a sudden the sleep of the ones who serve the king are being defeated is being turned around in this little episode. And that's it. So as he does it, he drives around the whole town. So shall be done to the one whom the king seeks to honor. Okay. End of episode. Now let's look at the reactions. Mordechai goes back now. He's been inside the, in spiritual terms, he's been inside the gate of the king. In physical terms, he's been around the city center. But now he goes back to the gate of the king. And Vayosha Mordechai, Rashi says, Rashi brings, it's Chazal. So he goes back to his sackcloth and back to his fasting. Why? He should be on top of the world. He should be throwing a Yom Tov. I can see the Yad Hashem. I can see Hashem's hand is coming in. I can see we're all going to be saved. It's all good. There's Ashkocha. Right? That's what we would probably do at this moment. Why is he going straight back into his sackcloth and his ashes and his fasting and everything? Because if you believe Hashem's running the world, you never know where you are in the story. He doesn't know where he is. Right now, Klaudisol is still in danger. So the fact there's been something very beautiful happen doesn't mean that he has to change his reaction. His reaction has to be the same. The same davening as before. The same fasting as before. All of this stuff has to be the same. Because you cannot try to read the Hashkoch and say, oh, this is how Hashem is running the world. I've got it all worked out. Instinctively, we all try and do this, by the way, all the time. Oh, Hashkoch is going well, let me, you know. And there are times when the Gemara allows you to do little things like that. But in the main, you can't do that. In the main, if you take seriously the fact that Hashem is writing the story, the, the things... Our bit of the script that we write is in every situation, what's the right thing to do right now? Right now, the Jewish people are in danger. It feels like things are beginning to go well. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how Shem's moving it. I haven't changed the avoider. When you swallow but sour, the halacha is when you're in danger, you carry on fasting. So Mordechai is not reading history exactly because he trusts Hashem to run history, which means he realizes his vision and his plan is too small to understand anything. So it's no clearer now than it was five minutes ago. Baruch Hashem, beautiful thing happened. I don't get what's going on. I'm not sure what your plan is, Hashem. Right now, my avoider, my work right now is to go back to davening. That's what I'm doing. What about Haman? So for Haman, Nidchaf over the Chofarosh. Haman is in his house now mourning and bedraggled. Now, what happened? Why Chofarosh covered heads? He had the very famous Gemara and the Chazal tell us, that is the story of his daughter who heard this rumor that Mordechai and Haman are being led through town, one's leading the other. She made the assumption, of course, my father's being led by Mordechai who must be being disgraced. So she threw the, the, the toilet pot all over, looks up, Haman looks up and oh my goodness, and she jumps off the roof, says, because he's full of filth and he's oval, he's mourning because he lost his daughter. Even if you read it without Chazal, 
you would still be forced to be bothered by this Chazal filling the beautiful thing here, but you would be forced to, um, the beautiful meaning, they make the words now beautifully make sense, but they add a dimension to the whole story. But you'll be forced to ask, why is Haman mourning and covered head? Like, okay, he's disappointed, but he's gone into total meltdown. And now we begin to see how this plays out. Haman tells over this whole story to Zeresh's wife and to all his lovers. And once again, we see this seems to be they're not the same category of people. Um, everything that had happened to him. Because Amalek always believes the most premeditated things, the most meaningful things are karahu. When they attack you, it's karcha, it's a mikret, complete coincidence. Of course, it's coincidence. And the wise people say to him, and Zeresh's wife, if this Mordechai is from the seed of the Jews, who you've begun to fall in front of him, you have no chance. You will surely fall to him. What's the meaning of this? These are people who believe the world is completely meaningless. What, what on earth are they saying? What, what's going on? Now, so essentially speaking, Essentially speaking, remember, if we remember the Gemara earlier, when Haman came in towards Achashverosh and said, we can get the Jews, what did he say? There is a people, is scattered amongst the, you know, and the Gemara said, it's all recording a double layer of the conversation. The simple meaning is, yeah, there's a people and they're scattered and they're unloyal and they're this and they're that and all this classical anti-Semitic story. But beneath it are double hints at the word. Achashverosh saying to him, Killing Jews is not a good idea. Usually empires that kill Jews collapse and look at what happened to Paro in Egypt. And Haman's saying, but the people are sleeping. Notice this. This night, the king wakes up, right? The, the people have been sleeping. Maybe they're not sleeping anymore. The people have been sleeping, right? The meaning that they're vulnerable, the, meaning the belief, the belief that Amalek has is deep in his subconscious is more than Amalek doubts God. We said Amalek doubts man. And specifically, Amalek does not, is not willing to believe there can be a people in this world who are ambassadors for God and God's will. It's not possible that you can live up to it. You're homo sapiens, you're going to be failures, you're not going to make it. And therefore, the state of the Jewish people is Yeshenim, sleeping. And all of a sudden, they're turning around going, whoa, maybe everything's woken up. Maybe, again, this is not conscious. Consciously, they're like, Consciously what's going on is, but before we get to consciously, subconsciously, there's a sense of, whoa, this is Zerah HaYehudim. And I know they call him Zerah just call him Imi Yehudim, he's a Yehudi. But they don't see the Jews in exile as Yehudim. Right? They see them as, uh, I don't know what, they're some, who knows what. But Zerah, he's a seed of the Yehudim, the original Yehudim, the original people of Yehuda. And uh, the, 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 I think it's the Gemara, she brings the, the whole, the, um, uh, story of, of the bracha that Yehuda gets at the end of Boratius, that he's going to always have his hand, sub, you know, being able to push down others. Maybe they've woken up. Now, this is the, now, consciously what's going on is a very strange thing. People who believe the whole world is mikra always have it figured out. You see, because you have to make sense of things. If you trust Hashem, you don't need to be in control. If you don't trust there's Hashem running things, you need to have the plan worked out. And if the plan is being thwarted, then the plan is being thwarted. 
So right now they're in a psychological state, consciously and subconsciously, where Haman is convinced he's going to lose. And in that state of mind, looking bedraggled, filthy, mourning, in, in a, a total mess. Now, hearing the last words he hears is, if this is Mizarayodim, you are going to fall before him. They are still speaking in the middle of this conversation. The officers of the king knock on the door. They have Hilu, the messengers and servants of the king. They have Hilu, they hurry, they panic, basically. The Havi is Hamak. Imagine, Hamak, I can't go now. No, 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 you got to go. You got to push him and drive him and Amishta to the drinking. Asha Asasa Esther, the feast that Esther has made. End of the chapter. Now we think about this. What's the first words that Haman's going to hear at the feast? He's going to, we'll see that next week and we know what it's going to be. But the point is right now is that he is not in the state of mind to deal with the fact she's about to reveal she's Jewish. When Imagine when she says, I'm a Jew. Ah, isn't that the last words I heard from Zeresh is that if he's a, there's a Jew, you're falling. She's a Jew, he's a Jew, right? So we will see that the fact that he has this belief that he's going to fall to the Jews is going to be pivotal in the next chapter. So this chapter has done several things. First of all, it's, it's taken all the things Esther was hoping to make happen, which didn't work out and started to thread the, weave the threads together. It's taken the paranoia of Achashverosh and turned him into an enemy of Haman. It's, it's, um, it's taken Haman's complete conviction and shown him his obliviousness and suddenly the, in this point of maximal control, he loses control because he really was never in control. And, and it's taken the evil itself riding the wave of history has now demonstrated what its ultimate destiny is going to be, that it will fail and then in doing so, it will reveal God, elevate, make the king more elevated, make the Jewish people more elevated. And this is, a, this is preparing him in his microcosm for what's about to hit him next. And all of this mindset issue is going to become now very, very, is going to become manifest in, in the next chapter. And of course, we already can begin to see the first glimpse of everything the Purim story stands for. Everything you think is one way is going to be the other. Evil in the end is going to reveal Hashem. It's going to destroy itself. It's going to reveal Hashem. That theme is going to push itself now, magnify itself more and more through the story. I think we have about three minutes. If there's time for any questions, if you've got at the end now. If anyone wants to ask, you have to unmute yourselves and uh, you can ask. Yeah, they are. Are you on the... Yeah, what do you have my what? Do you have a number for me? If you do, then then just WhatsApp is the best way, and I'll try and get you all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Pleasure. Pleasure. Any other questions? Okay, so that may be it for this week, then, and uh, hopefully we'll see you all again next week.